Welcome to Owl Have You Know, a podcast from Rice Business. This episode is part of our Flight Path series, where guests share their career journeys and stories of the Rice connections that got them where they are. Welcome to I'll Have You Know. Today, we have a magnificent guest, the Managing Director of Rice Alliance, Brad Burke. And it's reunion weekend. There's a lot of energy. There's all this music outside. There's like, you know, wine, cheese, food. It's like the best weekend ever to be on campus. Uh, So we want to thank you for being with us here today. And uh, we want to talk about your illustrious career here at Rice. You've been here for 22 years. 22 years, yes. The number one graduate entrepreneurship school in the country, right? So yes. it's a big deal. Yeah, we cool. talk about that a lot, and, yes. and you're really a, a big part of that. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And yeah. So so let's talk about, because I know you like to talk about Rice a lot, mm-hmm. but I would like to talk about you yeah, a sure. lot and know about your story and, and how you got started and how... I know that you were planning on just staying here for a hot minute at Rice, yeah. and it turned into 22 years. It did. So tell me, so you're from Memphis. So that's right. So I grew up in Memphis, lived there my whole life, and wanted to go to a college that was somewhere far away, but not too far away from home. So I went to Vanderbilt. In Tennessee. Which is in Nashville. Yeah. 200 miles away. It was before Nashville became cool. Now Nashville is kind of like Austin. Yeah. But it became cool. And um, so I went into went to Vanderbilt knowing that I was going to become a lawyer. I was uh-huh. pre-law, and I stayed pre-law until I took a finance class my senior year. Mm-hmm. Fall of the senior year, I had a, a faculty member who uh, had a great class, and he said, look, you should try business schools. And he, he took a piece of paper, drew, wrote down 10 names, drew a line halfway down, and said, you should apply to schools that are above the line. And if you end up having to go below the line, come see me. So I applied to about three or four business schools. Mm-hmm. I looked at... Uh, I had a tr- he wrote both Northwestern and Chicago on the list above the line, and I looked at where they were located. Northwestern's in the suburbs Evanston, on the lake. That's cold. It's and cold, so, uh, so I ended up going to Northwestern straight from Vanderbilt. I'd also applied to law schools and got in. I thought about doing a joint program, but ultimately said two years for an MBA, get a higher salary than you go three years as a, as a law student. Right. And uh, and business was really what I wanted to do and be in. And so Kellogg School. So Kellogg. So, so you were a baby on? MBA, what we call baby MBAs, right? A baby MBA. Uh, That's like original MBA, and you got the professional, and you got the executive. So you came full-time. into straight. Got a full-time MBA, two years. I had no work experience, so I didn't want to even consider like a four-quarter program or you know a one-year program because I needed a summer internship to get some work under my belt that had some relevance. And so uh, I went there, and uh, it was a great experience. Now... The first winter I was in Chicago was the coldest winter they'd ever had in Chicago, and it was the snowiest winter they'd ever had. Uh Being a Tennessee kid, uh, I interviewed with every company that came from a warm place. That was the great strategy, right? So uh, that included Exxon, and so I ended up taking a job with Exxon. Out of of business school? Out of Kellogg. Here in Houston? Well, it, it would have been Houston. Except they said, what would you think about working in a refinery in Baton Rouge? And I said, well, you know, at that time in my life, I said, that sounds cool to learn right. the business. Right. And, uh, and so I was there for three years and then came to Houston after that. And Exxon brought you to Houston. Exxon brought me to Houston. That's okay. Right. So how long were you at Exxon? I was there 15 years. Wow. And finance? Yeah. Uh, in finance, primarily. I also did sales. I sold lubricant specialty products for a while in a territory that went from Texas to California to Washington and Hawaii and Alaska. Wow. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough business to actually go on a business trip to Hawaii. 
but uh, that's but where a, I'd want to go. But I had a great territory. Yeah, yeah. that sounds so like a great territory. I did that too. So I did finance and, and sales and marketing. Okay. With excellent. And so you did that for fifteen years. Did that for fifteen years, um, and at fifteen years, uh, I was at that point at the international headquarters, international downstream headquarters. My next job would have been overseas, and at that point, I had to say, "Am I going to be an Exxon lifer or not?" Because if, if I was going to change jobs, I needed to do it then. Right. While I'm still in the U.S., so I decided to interview and with uh, a number of management consulting firms and got an offer and went into did a transition in management consulting for three years. Did you like that? Um, yes and no. Uh, I liked I liked the travel I um, and, and all that comes with it. But what I didn't like was not actually being able to implement the recommendations. So I felt like that they were paying us to develop a recommendation and a strategy. Couldn't we follow would, through. And they couldn't, and I could, you, you know, couldn't we, follow we didn't follow through. And ultimately most of the companies probably don't aren't able to successfully follow through. So I'd rather to do things than suggest recommendations for other people to do things. Right. And so I realized that really wasn't the, my favorite thing. So three years. Three years. And um, so this was when the internet was getting started in 90. I went there in 95 and was there through 98. Wow. Now, um, I remember on a in the middle of that, I remember being on a plane to France on a vacation. And I was like, what do I really want to do with my life when I grow up? And the internet came along, was coming along. And I had a second degree at Vanderbilt in computer science, of oh, all things. You, did, you failed to mention that earlier. So I two did. degrees. A two degree. Well, I had a, a double major. Not okay. two degrees, okay. but a double, double major. major. Okay. In business and computer science. Okay. And uh, I'd always sort of wanted to do something in that area. And then the internet came along. And I was on this flight. I remember being on this, on this flight to Paris. Yeah. In first class because I had enough miles to You're travel sure. first class to Paris. If you have enough miles, I mean, now they're worthless. So then they actually like meant something. Yeah. yeah. And, and so um, I was like, I think I want to get involved in the internet. Well, a person I, by, who I worked for in consulting had gone to a startup company, an internet startup company. What was it called? It was called Viant, which no one's heard about. Uh-huh. But it was a systems integrator. So we developed websites for people. And he said, hey, what do you think about coming over? to Viant. And so in 98, uh, I got recruited over to this internet startup company. Now, I was in Dallas at the time. And uh, so as part of the, the Dallas office, we were backed by venture capitalists from Silicon Valley. Uh, we um, ultimately, we were like, well, when will we go public? And we went public in 99. So I joined in 98. A year later, we went public. And the Goldman Sachs took us public, and the stock ran up like all the other dot-com stocks did at that say, time. I was going to say, dot-com, yeah. yeah. It went from you know, $8 to $55, so we're all happy. And uh, and we were thinking, well, we're here, we're here with the long term. For sure. Now, we're also watching all the inside trades on Yahoo Finance, and we're seeing that the VCs are all selling once the stock went public. A bit, a bit they're selling the stock. And I didn't understand the VC model at that time. Right. I didn't know that we were a home run for the venture capitalist. Right. But we're all there for the long term and, you know, we're going to hold our shares for, you know, low, you know, if we're going to sell it, we're going to wait a year at least to get the capital gains treatment. That's not the way that the venture capitalists were. And in. they were selling and we didn't uh, sort of understand the picture. And of course, we didn't know what the future held. Right. And then demand for our services dropped off and began to kind of peak in 2000. And then 2001, the demand dropped off for these services because the dot-com boom was over. And so 
I, in the middle of that, uh, I had moved. A lot to... of things happened in 2001, actually. Yeah, <laughs> there yes, was a, lot a lot of, of like pretty, pretty, you know, world, worldly events that happened at the same time. It did, and um, we, um, I had, uh, we, I had, th- I was in Dallas, but I was traveling to Houston every week because Compact Computer Corporation, which used to be on the north side of of Houston, yes, was our was our became our biggest client and the biggest client the firm had. It was so by I was, Halliburton. Yeah, so I was here every week. Anyway, and so that I we convinced the uh, the management of the company to open an office here. So I opened the Houston office of Viant downtown, rented a floor out, twenty thousand square feet, five year lease, and while that was being designed and built out, we had temporary space there, and then the dot com boom ended, and the space never got it, it never got built out. Wow. We closed the office in two thousand one, and uh, now it's not. Well, it was a great ride. It was a great ride. It was a great ride. Sure. Great front row seat to uh, going public, the dot-com boom, and, uh, you know, a little taste of venture capital and startup world. And so I thought, you know, at that point, I had worked for 21 years, never taken a day off, you know, basically, and was gonna, I was going to take a year off or so. And then the founder of the Rice Alliance, who was Stephen Corral, Steve Corral, a faculty member here at the Jones School, said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to run it so I can go back to teaching and How'd you meet research. us? I met him because we were doing, I was doing marketing and business development, trying to find startups we could sell our work to and we could build websites for. Uh-huh. So I was a, um, I was a judge at the very first Rice Business Plan Competition because oh, I really? met Steve. I was a sponsor of the Rice Alliance for when I was at Byatt. And so I knew him and I- So you believed in their program. I, I believed it. I was a sponsor of it. Yeah, and uh, and so I, uh, I I knew him and then interviewed with it, and was lucky that uh, was fortunate to be selected. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Uh, so of I this whole place in two thousand one. Um, I I joined in the summer of two thousand one, and um, and I remember having a conversation back to something you said a minute ago. I remember having a conversation with Steve, and he said, "Look, if you come on board, will you at least agree to stay for two years?" And I remember thinking in his office, I remember this conversation, it's like he, he and I were about as close together as you and I are. I remember thinking, well, you know, two years is a long time. But okay, <laughs> I'll stay here two years. And then- um, 22 years later. 22 years later, I'm still here. We're still here. <laughs> uh, Steve got recruited to London in about 2004, 2005. And so he, he- London School of Economics, is that where he was? Uh, he was uh, with uh, University College of London, but he also had a secondary appointment at another university there. And I think it was London School of Economics. Yeah. Uh, and so he was in London. And uh, and so that was great. Uh, I mean, it, from, from that same point, you know, it was a great move for him and, you know, good for the Rice Alliance. Well, a streamlined transition. It did. You know, this is something that you believed in from the very beginning. Yes. You know, and, and so tell me about how you've grown the Rice Alliance to to be what it is today, because it is the number one. I mean, this, when people think of entrepreneurship and when people think of, you know, the Rice Business Plan competition, it's bigger than Harvard. It's bigger than, I mean, yeah. it's the biggest one. So how did you, how did you start up that? Because you basically well, ran a startup. I did, and it's in some ways it still feels like a startup uh, as well. So I was a judge at the first business plan competition, and we had nine schools that competed for $10,000. Now, so I came on board six months after that first competition, and so I led the 2002 competition, and I said, look, 
we just got to, well, let's just say we're going to triple the prize money and see if we can figure out how to raise it. But we tripled the prize money. And incentivized quite a few it, additional startups. It did. So uh, we had 15 schools, I think, 14 or 15 schools compete for 30000 The following year. The second year of the competition. Then we raised it a little bit more the third year and the fourth year. And finally, in 2005, I looked at some of the other business plan competitions. And what they were doing is they were offering an investment prize for the grand prize winner of $100,000. So $100,000 investment prize. So that would be cool if we could do the same thing. Or even more. Or even more. Well, at the time, I would, yeah. Of course, <laughs> I was just happy big. to get $100,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing was, we always had the vision that we wanted to be the biggest. I want it to be the biggest and baddest and best business play competition. So uh, we approached uh, an investor in town, Dr. Jack Gill, who's a well-known, successful venture capitalist who was originally from Texas but lived in the West Coast for a long time, but then retired from venture capital and came back to Houston. Why? Why would you leave California? Well, uh, you know, he's from, from Texas originally. Yeah. Um, and the cost of living much better. And, uh, you know, I, I think he might say, you know, the lifestyle is better as well. Yeah. So um, we approached Jack and Jack said, I said, what we want to do is get individuals to put up $100,000 investment prize for the winner. And Jack said, yeah, I can do that. And I'll get four of my friends, friends and they'll, we'll have five of individuals who agree to put up $20,000 investment each and to come up with the first prize. Well, uh, it turns out we ended up with six individuals. We still kept it at 100000 but we had six individuals, including Rod Canyon, the founder of Compact Computer Corporation. We had uh, Michael Holthaus, a successful entrepreneur in, in, uh, uh, from, from Houston, and, and uh, three others. Uh, and so we had, in 2005, we had the first 100000 investment prize. So our prize money, the total that year was about 200000 Wow. Now, what's happened is that once this group of individuals did that, then other angel investment groups said, hey, maybe we could do the same thing. It's like the tipping point. It's it was. Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. It, exactly. It was the, the catalyst for the competition. And by about 2006, we had the most prize money of any competition. And um, at the time, uh, kind of the, the founder of the competition circuit was UT Austin. Macomb. And they, McCombs. Uh, they had been running it for a long time, and and uh, and they had they were one of the schools that we saw that had this hundred thousand dollar prize. But it was put up by a single individual, who after a few years decided that they didn't want to do that anymore. But the beauty of our model is that even there, even in the first year we had six individuals. So if one of them said I'm you know I want out, didn't make a problem. It didn't cause a problem. Now fast forward today. We've got about 25 individuals who were involved in sponsoring, investing in the grand prize winner. And uh, the prize now is 350,000 first place. Wow. And, uh, but then that year, 2005 was the first year, right? So they, they said, we're gonna put up, whoever the judges vote on will invest 100,000. But they met with the, the entrepreneur after the competition and they said, hey, we really kind of like his idea. And so instead of investing 100000 in that first winner, they invested $1.1 million in that winner. That was probably unexpected. It, it, was. it was. It was. I mean, imagine being that winner. Yes. You know? What a, what a, I mean, that, that's earth change. I mean, you it was, know. It was life-changing. Yeah. It has been life-changing for that individual who I still stay in touch with. Um. And he ultimately, his company would have failed 
Had it not been for that amount of money and for the advice he got from the members of the group, this which rice is community. this rice community, ultimately the company sold for over $100 million to Adobe. And so he had a great outcome and so did the investors, the Goose Capital Group that put up the investment yeah. money. And same thing happened in 2006. The team won, they were guaranteed 100,000, but then when they met with the founder of this, of the second company, they said, we really like this company, so we'll invest more. And ultimately, they, I think they invested about about six million in that second company, and that company exited as well, had a good exit. As I well. think I think that you have just guaranteed that there's going to be significantly more people entering this competition next year just by saying, like telling that tidbit of information of of you know just just the belief of of the people that that really believe in the Rice Alliance, that really believe in the competition, that really believe in, in the startups and, and the good that they can do and the way yeah. that they can change the world because that's that's what it's about. Well, it, it, it's amazing. You, you have the opportunity to mentor these amazing, bright, uh, enthusiastic, uh, young founders who are generally first-time founders. And then you have the opportunity to see this innovation benefit society you know, come to the world. And so you're, you you can see a real impact in what you do. So what are some of the ones that stick with you? Mm. Oh, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's, there are a lot of them. The, the, uh, the second winner created a, a device for an 18 wheeler going down the highway called a trailer tail. And you may see these going down the highway. So what he figured out was a trailer, uh, an 18 wheeler going on the highway is like the least aerodynamic thing that you could think of. It's a box with a truck in front pulling it. But what it does, it creates a suction in the back. And so it, that suction creates drag. So he created a device that would go on the back end of an 18 wheeler on the back of the trailer uh, that would uh, improve fuel efficiency by something between five and 8%. Wow. And it's a billions of gallons of gasoline, of diesel billions of gallons a year. So how it, did he come up with that idea? I'm just curious. Was he just driving down the road or did he have a background in, in this or? He didn't have a background, but I think he he learned of a, a faculty member who had done research in this around aerodynamics. And physics, I mean, that's, that. yeah, yeah that's exactly. It. And he was able to take that technology and then get some data that say, yeah, that really does work. And so then he developed that company. It's amazing. What yeah, else? Who very else? cool. Tell me, tell me about another one. Because oh, I've well, been... you know, one that what, uh, the individual that I like a lot is a, a, a student from Brigham Young University. Created this was back in um, probably fourteen years ago or so, fifteen years ago. Created an app to to scan QR codes. It's my favorite thing in the whole wide world. Oh well, back then it's it's commonplace now, right? Almost yeah. every app can scan a QR code. But I mean, it, that's really like life changing for me because that way, I mean, because I, I, well, because I, I serve on a lot of nonprofit boards and in order to get folks to, to, you know, to donate, like, listen, just put a QR code on, on all of, all of your marketing material. Or when you go to a luncheon or when you go to an event, the QR code with their phone, because nobody wants to take out their credit card. Nobody wants, like, that's too much effort. Just simplify people's lives and give them their time back. If you can figure out a way to give somebody back their time. Fine. That's the most precious of so natural resources. In the early days of the QR codes, he created one of the first most popular apps to scan QR codes when you couldn't just do it on your, your phone yeah. camera. So he created this app. He had something like in the first couple of weeks, 36 million downloads of this app. He was on Shark Tank 
And I don't think he got investment from the Sharks at that time because they said his company was overvalued too much, but it drove demand for his app. What did they know? What did they know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they made a big mistake because uh, ultimately he raised about $9 million of investment, which he didn't really need all that money, but he probably raised more than he needed. And then he had an exit. But his exit was private, was not disclosed. Mm-hmm. But I got a call one day from one of the investors from Houston, and, and he said, hey, did you see that? Uh, did you read about this company? The company was called uh, Scan. And I said, no, tell me about it. We'll go on the web, and it turns out that uh, when, now here's a, a, a convoluted way to get around to this. When the movie comedy, the interview came out, it was about North Korea. Mm-hmm. And the North Koreans didn't like that movie. It was put out, I think, by Sony. Shocking. They, they hacked into Sony's uh, web servers. And as a result, some of the emails that were confidential got disclosed. One of the emails that got disclosed was from an uh, executive at Snapchat to an executive at Sony. And it said, hey, we're not going to disclose this, but we have just acquired Scan for $54 million. Wow. So if you had invested in this company, you would have done really well. And, uh, but people, most people didn't. Right. And he didn't do that well with the competition because people said, well, it's just app to, to scan QR codes. Well, it's the, it's the most basic things that people don't, don't really think it's, you, it's a chess game, right? And, and I think that a lot of times there's people with phenomenal ideas and they get rejected over and over, over. and over again. And it's, just, and you know what, like the light bulb that failed a couple of yeah. a thousand, He's, over a thousand times. He said, right? he said he, one day, one of his stories was. He was had a, a meeting with a VC on Sand Hill Road, which is where all the VCs are in Silicon Valley. And he said, I got there early, and so I just decided to walk up and down the road and knock on VC doors. And I said, well, I'll to try to talk my way into it. Now, and he says, I tried to talk my way into about 10 different VCs, and he never got past the gatekeeper on any of them. Oh, guys. So he didn't even get in. And the VC that he talked to had no interest in investing. So his, his investment came from other places. But this guy... This changed his life because he sold his uh, company for a lot of money. And then he said, look, what I want to do is travel. And so he created what he's branded as the bucket list family. And so prior to COVID, he spent about uh, four, four years traveling every week to a different place, posting a video about that location that he's in. And then he brought taken his kids with him too. So now he has three young kids uh-huh. and they've traveled all over the world. And basically I said, well, you know, so you're using the money that you earned, right? He said, no, he, they figured out a model that to monetize, allowed, monetize his adventure travel. Could he share that with me? Because I would really like that. That would be, that would be ideal. Like you, you just give me his number, I give him a call, figure it out. Because that, that's brilliant. Um, okay, so so what is the future for the Rice Alliance? Where 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 are we going next? Well, I, it's um, it, it's a it's a it's a number of things. I mean, one is the business plan competition has continued to get bigger. So I said we started with nine teams. We now have forty two teams. Last year, at the end of the uh, banquet, we were at the total prize money was two million dollars, the highest ever. But that wasn't all because the same thing that happened back in 2005 happened last year. So the group that put up the grand prize, they after they, again, met with the company, they said, we really like this. So they put in $1.5 million in last year's winner. 
but they led around the total round was about five and a half million. So the winner of our competition last year got five and a half million led by investors from Houston. Wow. And, and um, in total, the Goose Capital Group has invested 27 million in business plan competition winners. Yes, he's so just becoming a, a really big VC place, you know, I mean, more yeah. so than Austin. Well, there's a lot, especially angel investors who want to give back and support entrepreneurs. A group of judges saw what the Goose Capital Group was doing and they got together and said, hey, we can do the same thing. So a group of, we have 275 judges at the competition. A group of them came to me at the end of the banquet and said, look, hey, we can do the same thing the Goose Cat can, but, you know, we won't invest each as much. And so led by a Rice alum who is a West Coast venture capitalist, has organized a group called the OWL Investment Group. Mm -hmm. Every year they put up an investment prize and they have now invested over $5 million in business plan competition teams, way more than you know, they initially you know, signed up to do. So it, uh, th this competition has, mo has mobilized a number of individuals who really weren't doing angel investment before. Right. And now they're doing not just investment in the business plan competition, but they're investing in companies from Houston as well. Right. And Houston is now becoming, you know, this with the ION and everything else. I mean, it's it's really becoming the place to be, which is also exciting. And to be just right down the street. And Rice is very much involved with the ION. And, and uh, you know, you've got the medical center right here. And it's it's exciting times to be at Rice. It's and a great it's time, to be, time Rice. to be in Houston. We launched uh, about... Uh, 11 years ago, we launched a accelerator for students in the summer called the OwlSpark Accelerator. The initial idea, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't a particularly novel idea, but it was started by four students at Rice. And one of the students, an MBA student, deferred his McKenzie full-time career so he could run it the first year. Wow. So he ran it the first year, and then we took it over in year two. And so we've completed 11 years of the Alspark Accelerator, I think, 10 or 11 years. We've had 77 or so startups that have gone through it, and they've raised over $100 million Amazing. in that time. And then last summer, so those are for tech startups. Last summer, we started a second accelerator if you have a small business, a consumer product business, a non-traditionally VC backable business. Right. And so last year we started the first cohort of what we call the Blue Launch Accelerator. And it is for consumer products and other- I get those uh, emails. Other other uh, startups, yeah. So it so we expanded to a second. So we cover those individuals who want to start a company. Yes. But it's not a high-tech company and it's not going to get, likely not going to get venture capital. But really creating opportunities for, for all of those that really want to get involved. Yes. You know, this is this is the Mecca. So if you have, like you come to uh, Rice to come to school or you come to get your MBA, if you have an interest in learning about entrepreneurship or getting into entrepreneurship, there's so many things, programs that you can get into like AlSpark or Blue Lodge, where you can, at, with low risk, you can for three months work on your company and decide, is this something that really has legs and that I want to stay with. And so it's very, it's very cool. Well, it's, it's, um, what are you the most looking forward to? What's, what's for the next year? What are you excited about the most? Last question and then I'll leave you alone. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> what, what is, what is really huge right now and the momentum is behind the energy transition in Houston, all of the oil and gas, major oil and gas companies, you know, traditionally are, you know, they're, 
were 10 years ago were focused on how do we produce more oil? How do we produce it more efficiently? They have all now embraced that we're entering this energy transition period where we'll have both oil and gas and we'll have renewable and sustainable fuels. Ultimately, that's the long term. Right. And we're in this well, period of time. Nuclear fusion as well. But Exactly. Exactly. That may be, that in fact, may be the answer. But Agreed. Um, we are in this period. So we launched a clean energy accelerator two years ago and we're about to uh, start, we're, we're look evaluating the applicants for the third cohort of the clean energy accelerator. And part of the reason is we're attracting startups from all over the U.S. and outside the U.S. to come through the accelerator with a side of, you know, we want to help them be more successful, but we also want to show them what's going on in Houston, what they have at the ION and what they have at other places in Houston so that they think about starting the company here or moving here or at least opening an office here. Right. And we also want to show the investors in Houston really promising clean energy technologies. And so it gives investors in Houston like an early look at some of these promising technologies. So Houston, I think, has the ability, you know, we've been the energy capital of the world. We have the ability to be the energy transition capital of the world uh, because we have the knowledge, the expertise, the resources here, and almost every major energy investor knows about Houston and is aware of it and has a presence here. So I think it, it's going to be transformative for the city. And it all starts here. It's where starts you belong, here. right? Right. Rice is where you belong. Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and, and to learn about your story. I think that uh, there's many that, that know about the Rice Alliance, but you know, you're very humble and you don't really talk much about yourself. So thank you for sharing Thanks. all that with us. Thanks. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for listening. This has been I'll Have You Know, a production of Rice Business. You can find more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe and leave a rating wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Maya Pomeroy, and Scott Gale.